Welcome to the Four for Friday podcast. This episode is the 10th anniversary of the first time we ever had intro music. Do you know what that means? No. It means this. <laughs> Michael, do you want to walk everyone through the format? Oh, sure. Uh, cool. So welcome to Four for Friday. Uh, this is the first episode of season two. So uh, thanks for everybody that listened early on. Uh, what we do in Four for Friday is, you know, Will and I are lifelong friends. And uh, every week we record a podcast and we uh, go through four topics, uh, spend a few minutes on each one of them, uh, one at a time, uh, in and out in 20, 25 minutes, just like nature intended. And uh, we get going. It's a lot of fun. So I think this week you have the first question. Do you want to start us off? Yes, I get asked this all the time. So I, you know, I'm a technology entrepreneur. So I get asked like, how do I learn to code, right, as an adult, right? Like, how do I, how do I get up to speed on all this technology stuff? So uh, I'm curious, Will. You're not a technology person. You're a real estate person, but you are technically technologically savvy. How, what is your first inclination on the answer to this? God, I have to think all the way back to when I learned Fortran uh, freshman year in college. That was the only programming language I ever tried to learn. Uh, I think you have to learn how to think in algorithms as kind of a key step in learning to code. Right. Uh, but beyond that, I would say talk to people who know how to code and jump in. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what, what's interesting, and I see everybody try, and when you say, like, you want to learn algorithms, that is exactly how they teach you uh, computer science in college, right? And everybody's like, oh, okay, like, I'll start there and I'll work my way up. And actually, I think that's totally backwards, because I've seen everybody that tries that kind of methodology to replicate kind of the college theoretical stuff first, and then eventually get to practical stuff, like it never works. They always end up quitting. You know, it's, it's like the, uh, the technological equivalent of trying to lose weight. Like, it's just like, non-sustainable. It's like a non-sustainable diet. So what I actually suggest to people is to go find a way to make playing with technology fun, right? Go find projects that are out there. And it could be could be anything, right? It could be uh, get a Raspberry Pi so you can track airplanes, or or my buddy learned how to program a um, a, a, a small embedded computer because uh, he and his daughter were building a project. So you know, like that's the type of stuff where you have a, a relatively easy kind of hobby level technology thing to, that you want to do. Like, oh, I want to build a web page. Well, like that's the better place to start than like starting learning algorithms or like how to build, build a function or like how to structure your database. Like none of that stuff's actually going to give you the, the quick reward cycle that completing something well. So is that because learning to think in algorithms is not fun and you have to engage people on uh, the fun side of it? Because most people don't intuitively think in algorithms in terms of process and those sorts of working through steps. I think it's more, I think it's more around if you want to get good at something, you need to make it uh, so you're stacking like a reward with it. Okay. So like, like one of the things I've learned in the past couple of years, like when I, when I, one of the reasons I'm very good about working out now is I like stack it to be something fun. So like, like I go to a CrossFit gym, like afterwards we go get like a really nice coffee. 
like, and I hang out with my friends from the, from the gym. Like I've stacked a good habit there. And so like, if you start with the theoretical foundations of computer science or of computing uh, and expect that to get you anywhere, it's not going to work because there's no feedback loop. There's no sense of accomplishment. Congratulations. You know how a linked list works works but that doesn't actually give you any kind of positive feedback loop to where you're going to come back again for that endorphin rush and right and that's and that's why i would say for the vast majority of people that start with the theoretical stuff it just doesn't work you have to start with something that's going to give you a much quicker reward and that's playing with the technology finding something that you can accomplish relatively easily can you connect that idea to this idea which i've heard you and other people i know who uh can code in a couple of different programming languages which is once you've learned two or three programming languages, it's not hard to pick up new ones. Uh, for sure, right? But it's also, there's a nuance to that where some languages are radically different than others. So um, it's kind of like English. English, and then you have the Latin languages, and then you have the, all the far, far Eastern languages. So like once you know, let's say for example, Latin or Italian or, or Spanish, it's easy to go between those Latin languages. So there's, there's families of languages like that in, in, in computing and in programming. But then you go over to like, let's say Mandarin, right? Which is very tonal uh, in terms of how it expresses stuff. And, and like, it's really, really difficult for, for, let's say a Western speaker who hasn't grown up with it to learn it. So, you know, that's the same thing in, in uh, families of languages for computing as well, where you see things like, you know, one of the college languages we had a scheme is what it was called. And it's a dialect of this thing called Lisp. Well, you just, it just thinks totally differently than say the Latin language equivalent of, of, uh, of computing, right? Which might be Java or JavaScript, which are kind of the two most widely used languages these days. So what would be the most fun programming language to start with? I would definitely start with um, a, a couple of different things. So if you want to start with an actual real programming language, um, JavaScript or, or Python are going to be kind of the two most commonly, commonly seen ones out there. Um, and the reason that you want to stick with the most commonly seen ones is because uh, the kind of projects and tutorials that you're going to want to follow to accomplish things are going to be written in those languages by and large, right? Um, so, you know, those, those are really the two to start with. Well, you know, it turns out like they're also pretty representative of the broader language of, of stuff out there. Didn't you write a book on Java programming way back when? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I, got, I get some street cred from that. <laughs> help with your street cred huh <laughs> cool all right let's move on to the uh next topic uh so this is one for you mr rob how much coffee should you drink and let's say in a day how much coffee should you drink in a day uh i'm gonna say zero but that's that's not what i actually drink how much do you actually drink i drink i would say one to two cups of coffee and really i try to keep it like I mix caffeinated and decaffeinated coffee. We talked about it in season one a little bit, but I try to go one cup of 25% caffeinated. What do you think? Uh, I have a quota per day. If I work out, I drink four cups. If I don't work out, I drink three. I see. And is that, is that based on anything other than your personal experience with coffee? Or is that based on some kind of scientific thought you've, you've read about? Well, I mean, interestingly enough, I think there are different, you know, physiological responses to coffee. Um, I'm actually a person where I can drink coffee and then go to sleep immediately afterwards. 
I don't know why, but I'm totally fine with it. Um, so I, I like, I, I do well with coffee compared to other people, but no, I think it's just deciding, okay, if it's an addictive substance in some regards, and if I didn't, if I didn't check it, it's easy that I would drink eight or 10 cups of coffee a day. Right. I just, I just see that it's one of those things where I've broken the seal and I would, you know, end up going too far. So it, this also ties back to the previous thing of trying to give like a positive feedback loop. Uh, right to reinforce good habits right so a good habit is if I work out in the day and a pleasurable thing is to have a coffee so like what I will do is is I stack that right and they say okay if I'm working out I'm gonna have a fourth cup of coffee today but if I don't I only get three um, I have experimented with drinking more and drinking less coffee and I have found that too many more like just I didn't feel good and and less I felt like I didn't really change anything and I was leaving some kind of life pleasure on the table Normally, I'm like you, where a cup of coffee during the day doesn't really affect my ability to go to sleep. I can take a nap in the afternoon if I'm so inclined, or I'll fall asleep uh, pretty easily at a normal time. Uh, but if I've got too much going on in my mind, if I'm thinking about stuff too much, and I've, I've had coffee, it tends to create a, a kind of a, a bad stack, the opposite of what you're talking about, kind of a bad experience of um, having trouble falling asleep or staying awake, thinking about stuff too much. Or just being too revved like during the day at work um, and so even if I settle down and fall asleep successfully it's just it puts me in kind of an overactive mind state that's actually counterproductive and I think if you talk to therapists and mental health professionals they'll they'll recommend you know cut way back on coffee or cut it out cut off your caffeine intake um, if you're suffering from anxiety or depression or any of those things yeah I got you. Well, fortunately, I feel um, I feel lucky enough in my biology that I it's one of those things that you know I can get away with. So, okay. yeah. It, but I think the strategy for anybody is like you have to basically run some experiments and 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 treat your life like a like a chemistry set, right? And say like, oh, how do I feel today if I eat some lettuce? How do I feel today if I have five cups of coffee? How do I feel today if I have three? And it's going to be different for you know for everybody in terms of where they should end up. So, so I think certainly happy, helpful to kind of observe your experience with uh, caffeine or coffee or any kind of food, kind of what happens to your body? How do you feel later on in the day after consuming it? Yeah, cool. Well, I think we're moving on to our third question, but I think I would recommend you moving your microphone slightly further away from your face because it's getting blown out a little bit. You hear it? Okay. We'll try that. All right, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, I was hearing like the blowout of your breath, which, you know, your hot breath is very exciting, but not in this context. Okay, we'll see what we can do about that. <laughs> All right, let's move on to question number three. So question number three is, let's talk about Bayes' theorem. I feel like this is a useful concept to think about. And uh, Bayes' theorem is a way of finding the probability of something when we know other probabilities for sure. How often uh, event A happens when we already know that event B has happened or is true. So the example I use is uh, the idea of when there's smoke, there's fire. Okay. So it, we'll walk through this idea with some assumptions for the math. So dangerous fires are rare, 1%. Got it. Smoke is fairly common. You know, you might see smoke from a not dangerous fire or, you know, something that's controlled like 10% on barbecues. So smoke is fairly common. That happens 10% of the time. 
And then the other thing is 90% of dangerous fires make smoke. And so this kind of gives us uh, an ability to figure out how much should we worry if we see smoke. So the probability of dangerous fires when we see smoke, it's uh, the probability of fire 1% times the probability of smoke uh, when there's a fire 90% divided by the probability of just everyday smoke controlled mm -hmm. fire 10%. And that all works out to 9%. So not a not a call for a huge reaction anytime you see smoke, but certainly enough that you want to be wary anytime you see um, smoke. So that example is a little oversimplified because it doesn't consider how much smoke or things like that. But it helps us to think about what is the probability of something happening if I already know something else related to it has happened. Right. What um, I think, so maybe to bring it, bring it to reality, the, the, the time I feel like I see Bayes' theorem the most is, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but like when I'm typing into Google and I say like, you know, what is the weight of the, and I type a W and it knows I'm typing, I want to know world, right? Like, cause it, it sees that when somebody types those things, there's a high probability that um, I end up with that. Or is that not Bayes' theorem? Bayes' theorem or something else? That, that is Bayes' theorem. That's used in a lot of search engines. And it's also using to drive your search results. Uh -huh. So that's Bayes' theorem. It's also useful when considering tests, like an allergy test or a medical test, right? Because all those tests are not 100% reliable. Sometimes um, they'll deliver a false positive, meaning uh, it shows that you have the condition when really you don't or it'll show a false negative. Uh, you have the condition, but it fails to show that. So if you work that together with some Bayes theorem, you can kind of find the probability of, what's the chance that I really have a rare condition after I go take, take this test? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I've read this Wikipedia article for Bayes like so many times, um, and I didn't take advanced statistics or any of the kind of economics courses where this stuff would come up in college. So, you know, it's been one of those things I've had to learn post, you know, post-college. But it, it also, I wonder how you think about it. It, it, it feels so hard to internalize, right? I, of the Wikipedia articles I read over and over again, it's, it's, it feels hard to me. And is that, why do you think that is? Is it because we as humans have a hard time thinking probabilistically or is it something else? Or maybe I'm just an uh, idiot. That's the third option. So, because to do the math, you're stringing together like four different if-then concepts mm -hmm. all together, and understanding the relationships between each of them. So I think maybe you know intuitively, I think it's easy to think in terms of like, oh well, I know this fact already, so I'm going to make an inference about whether this other fact is true. Mm -hmm. I think we all do that all the time and can can internalize that part of it, but to actually work out the math is pretty difficult and we don't do it very often, right? Uh, I'm sure, you know, the Google search engine's doing it millions of times a day, but for most of us, we don't use these concepts very much in, in terms of actually needing to know the answer. Yeah. Well, and so most people end up just kind of doing rules of thumb, like when there's smoke, there's fire, that feels like a, a heuristic, but in reality behind it is a, there's math that's happening in our head. Yeah, and, and I think the reason I bring it up now is 
uh, in the world of COVID and COVID testing, we tend to think of those things as, as purely binary, either you have it or you don't, either the, the test is positive or it's negative. Right. And if you work through the math examples on those that you can find pretty easily for testing for allergies or testing for conditions, you realize that unless the test is really, really strong at giving a correct result and not giving a, a false positive or a false negative, uh, the, the chances that the test gives you a weird outcome are really pretty slim. It really affects uh, the probability that you have the thing that you're testing for. Got it. Cool. Well, in closing on this topic, like how can I run my life better by knowing about this concept? I would say be aware of where it applies and be aware of when stuff is not binary. Like when there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah, that's generally true, but it's not always true. Mm -hmm. There's always that probability that you're getting a, a misleading signal. Got it. Well, yeah, and a, a shout out for a book that I really like is one called Thinking and Bets. It's by a lady named Annie Duke. It's kind of made the rounds in the past couple of years. Um, and it talks about a lot of these ideas around thinking and probabilities and how to think better around that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's good. Cool. All right. Fourth question. Fourth question. Uh, which 14er should we hike? You're currently in Colorado and Breckenridge. Uh, you've conquered one Colorado 14er. I've I've climbed them all. We're talking about doing one here in the near future. Um, so you want to tell everybody a little bit about your experience the last time you tried a 14er? <laughs> well, maybe what is a 14er? Oh, well, let's back up to that. So a 14er is a mountain uh, over 14,000 feet. And there are 58 of them in Colorado, uh, which is a little bit rare nationally. There are a handful in California uh, and a bunch in the, the Northwest. But for some reason, in Colorado, there are a lot of mountains above 14,000 feet, but less than 14,500 feet. Uh -huh. So it's kind of a, a, a hobby, a project for Colorado residents. Uh, well, yeah, so um, to answer your question about what happened the last time, I flew up to Colorado and uh, I proceeded to not acclimate to the, uh, to the altitude. I uh, proceeded to drive up with you and another friend of ours, Kurt, uh, totally unprepared, carrying a heavy pack, went out way too fast, uh, barely made it to the top, uh, started hallucinating on the way down, got altitude sickness, and it ended up being a 10-hour adventure when it should have been about three. Is that, is that accurate? I think we were looking at a minimum of six or seven hours that day. So. <laughs> Uh, but I, I found it interesting that you were able to maintain the, the pace and didn't seem to be struggling at all until about 12,000 feet, right around where the, the trees stop. And you asked us, you're like, yeah, hey, so what do you think, like 30 minutes more? And, and we looked at each other and said, no, we're just starting the hard part of this journey now. Um, yeah. So a lot of that experience was, uh, it was too much exertion too early in the day. And so... The, the mountain we climbed that day was La Plata Peak. It's uh, 14,400 feet approximately. It's the fifth highest in Colorado. And our elevation gain that day was 4,500, a huge <laughs> elevation gain. Yeah. So if we pick one that's a little more mild, uh, we can pick one with about 3,000 feet of elevation gain um, and not as high of a summit. It's somewhere around 14,100. We should get a better outcome. Yeah. 
and I was eyeballing two forests, Quandry Peak, which is really close to Breckenridge and kind of a natural choice, or Huron, uh, which is down by Buena Vista. And so I'd probably be an hour drive for you from where you are now. Yeah. Uh, the problem with Quandry is it's excessively boring. It's a, a slow, steady income. It's a Stairmaster. You'll find yourself uh, exerting yourself pretty hard during the day and fatigued at the end. Uh, but it's just a, a steady incline and a straight line. So it, it winds up not being that much fun to climb. And what I, I got a phone call last night from a friend of mine who wants to climb Quandary, but he wants to take an alternate route up the West Ridge. Okay. A lot more interesting. And I've got another wrinkle for you. Uh, he wants to do it at night because there's currently a comet in the sky. And he thinks if we do it at night, uh, Saturday or Sunday, uh, we'll get good visibility on the comet. Like this weekend? Like this weekend. <laughs> I got stuff to <laughs> You got stuff to do? I'm still not even acclimated to the altitude up here yet. I'm dying. <laughs> You've been doing bike rides every day. I know. I know. I need like another week or so to feel like I'm, feel like I'm present. Uh, Oh man. Okay. Well, maybe we can talk about it more we'll, offline. We'll talk about it. We'll get back at people in a future podcast. This was the inside baseball portion of the uh, podcast. So yeah, we'll report back and see what I saw hallucinating this time. <laughs> I have a couple of pieces of uh, general podcast business that I want to touch on before we close. Please. Uh, thanks to one of our listeners who uh, texted in a response about favorite designers or architects. He liked a guy named Mize Vanderroe who uh, was a Chicago area architect and he designed a house called the Farnsworth house. And uh, I had a lot of fun reading about that and thinking about it again, because I knew the Farnsworth house. I hadn't thought very much about this designer. It was really, it's kind of a predecessor or a similar house to the Eames house I talked about on our podcast, kind of a long flat rectangle with a lot of glass. Uh, and he built it kind of world war one area era. It was, really kind of forward thinking at the time doesn't look like much else hmm. uh, and then i have a thing to promote we're going to have a guest next week we we're going to bring on jenny silver who is my cousin and she is a san diego area business leader and writer wow that sounds exciting so how's the format going to work she's just going to share we're going to do say fewer questions and she's going to speak to him as well and be part well, of the discussion. Let's still do four questions and we'll, we'll talk to her about uh, which questions she wants to sound in on, maybe all of them. And uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, buddy. All right. Hey, great job by you this week. Every week getting better. And also one thing I just forgot to mention, uh, we had our biggest week ever uh, before we took a week off. Uh, our audience has grown 25% since the month of May. So um, really exciting stuff. Well, that's great. Cool. Well, Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Congratulations to us. See you later. Don't want to hear about it. Every single one's got a story to tell.